Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Hello and welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining me once again on this Sunday morning as we continue to have these great conversations with the brightest minds around the country as it relates to responsible fatherhood. Today, I have the pleasure of having one of my best friends. She don't know that, but she is, even though she doesn't believe it sometimes. She is one of my best friends. I can rely on her for almost anything. I can talk to her with almost everything. Um, She is my writing yin to my yang, where I don't get it right. She corrects my course. Um, She makes my word look look beautiful on paper and I love her so much for everything she is her name is Dr. Stacy Boucher um, she is the senior consultant for Fathers Incorporated she is also the co-author of Fathers Incorporated's training curriculum what about dad that equips health and human service providers to more effectively engage fathers Dr. Boucher is also the principal consultant of Boucher and Associates Uh, She was the previous executive director of Women in Fatherhood, and she continues to be one of the foremost research leaders in this country, although she doesn't believe that either. She is one of the leading voices um, specifically for responsible fatherhood in this space. How are you doing? I'm great. And I consider you one of my best friends, too. (laughs) Yeah, she um, as you will hear today, her insight is incredible. So I'm going to lean back. I'm just going to guide this conversation um, and you will hear how brilliant she is today. Stacey, I start off all my guests, at least for the last two months with this primary question, because it is one of the most interesting questions that. um, uh, gets the most interesting answers, and it oftentimes shifts my focus of my conversation. But I ask it because I know that this particular question is so important for those who look at us who do this work as well as us who do this work. And that question is, what's your daddy's story? Give me a little bit of your daddy's story. My daddy's story is uh, my parents... Uh, My mom was 17 and my dad was 19 when I was born. And my dad was a uh, abused pretty severely by my grandfather. He used to come home from work and take my dad outside and make him fist fight him. And that didn't stop until my dad could win. So it went on for a long time. Um, My dad had an alcohol and drug problem. By the time I was born and he was violent with a lot of people when he drank my mother never with me but um, they ended up getting married and he uh, left when I was between five and six and it, it devastated me I he was um 
he people describe him because you know I didn't really know him that well, mm-hmm. and they'd say, you know, he'd walk into a room and his personality would light it up. Uh, he was the funniest guy there, uh, cockiest. Um, my dad was a very good-looking man, and um, I desperately, desperately longed to be with him. And uh, it was a pretty bad breakup between my mother and father. She did a lot of bad-mouthing him to me. And uh, he ended up moving in. Uh, we, we were very poor. And he moved in to an apartment across the street with a prostitute. Um, and she was also a snitch. So... Mm. They ended up uh, hatching this plan to rip off a drug dealer for about $100,000. So they steal the money, and they fly to Hawaii so they don't get killed. And when he gets down there, the prostitute snitch steals the money and leaves him with nothing in Hawaii. Wow. So he decided... Um, he would go rob a bank. And I, uh, he went to federal prison for it. He was in North Carolina on Bunting Street. I'll never forget that address. I looked for it every day in the mail. And, um, yeah, he, uh, he got a weekend leave, and he stayed with his mother, my grandmother, and I got to stay over. And he put me to bed one night, and I said, you know, can I ask you a question? And he's like, yeah, sure. I said, why did you rob that bank? And he looked at me and he said, because I needed the money. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So he was, um, he was in and out of prison uh, through most of my, and, and didn't really see me much after that. Um, his drug addiction got worse. His alcoholism got worse. And um, so I saw him about four years before he overdosed. He overdosed on a speedball and his heart exploded. And he was in the shower when it happened. And there were like three other guys in this house. And they took him and his naked body and dropped him on the steps of my aunt and uncle's house. And they opened the door, and there was my father's dead body laying there. And uh, so he didn't die with any dignity either. And so he used to um, party with my cousins. I have 12 cousins on my dad's side of the family. And out of 12 of us, uh, nine are either in active addiction or recovery. Uh, so it's it's real. Um but uh, yeah, um, wow. He, I saw one of my cousins years. This was in like two thousand nine or ten. Uh, I hadn't seen him for a long time, and went out there for Thanksgiving. And he used to uh, shoot heroin with my father, mm-hmm. but he had been clean for like fifteen years now. And I said to him, Sean, can I ask you a question? And he said, Sure. I said why do you think my dad never got clean? 
Why, why do you think he didn't want to see me? And this grown man, my cousin, tough kid, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, tough guy, broke into tears and sobbed. And he looked at me and he said, Stacy, your dad was a great man. He never knew it. And when he said that, I thought, that's the legacy I share with my father, Mm. that I don't believe in myself enough. I doubt myself. And um, no one would have known that about him, though. Uh, He never let on, but apparently Sean knew because they spent so much time together. Um, I thought one day he would get clean and come back and reunite with me. I never stopped hoping. Uh, And when he died, I had to give that up. And... Uh, I had a therapist say to me once, I had this condition called relentless hope about my father and men. And she said, you think your father would have come back, but you're not facing the truth that he never would have. And I said, how dare you say that to me? And I said, like, that's the most tragic horrible thing anyone could say to me. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, that I was being idealistic, but I did always hope. And he's something, he's someone I think about almost every day. Because wow. uh, I do this work. Mm-hmm. I, I think he could have benefited. I think it could have been different. And that's why I'm doing this work well, because I want you, it to be different. Yeah. Before you go into that topic, because I do, that leads me right into my next question. Um, I just want to say, um, Dr. Stacy Boucher, it is my life's commitment to you to always remind you how great you are. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I hope I've at least done an okay job in doing that. And I think that you are surrounded by people who mostly carry the same commitment for you. So that is never something that you will lack in your life. People telling you how great you are, even amongst the people who don't recognize how great you are. Our voices (laughs) will be louder than theirs. I guarantee you that. But I also wanted to lead into right where you were going, which is Um, How has that story influenced um, your work um, in Responsible Fatherhood? Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, uh, like I said, we were pretty poor. No one in my family ever went to college. And I was just working a job, cleaning and stuff. And I was in therapy, though, committed. So my father overdosed. I was 22. And... I got extremely depressed. That's when I was first diagnosed with a major depressive disorder. And I went into therapy and she said to me, do you know that you're smart? And I said, 
I'm not smart. I said, I got barely, barely passing grades all through school. Never had my homework. I was just a total flake. And um, all my teachers, uh, when my mom was moving out of her first house, she said, come get your old boxes of stuff. And I sat in, on her basement floor looking at all these demerits and progress reports saying, if only she would put some effort in. She doesn't care. She's not trying. And I started crying because I had, like, it took everything I had to survive every day just to get there, Mm -hmm. Um, let alone have homework done. But anyway, um, so I said to my therapist, I am not. She said, I think you're really smart, and I think you should consider going back to college. And... uh, she took it took about a year, but she talked me into it, and I became a psychology major. I was taking a child uh, development class, and I did my first research, or not research paper, but term paper on the effects of paternal absence. So that was in like sophomore year undergrad. Fast forward to. Everybody in my undergrad, all of those professors said, you're smart enough that you should go into a PhD program. I was like, what? Are you sure? <laughs> like, just do it. So I did. I, could, I did follow directions. Um, and I'm doing my dissertation, working with the fragile families and child well-being data and looking at father involvement in fragile families. And co-parenting relationships. So, um, nice, nice, and um, doing a phenomenal job at that. As, as much as we dig, we still have so much further um, to dig. But from your vantage point, you know, when you look at this work of responsible fatherhood, um, how much better, worse, or the same um, is it as ten years ago? That's interesting. Um, I think it's better. I think because we've had more and more rounds of grantees. I think the grantees have gotten more knowledgeable and better at delivering services for the most part. Um, I think we've gotten better at what we've been doing, uh, especially with the clearinghouse and you finally doing direct service. Uh <laughs> Um, but a lot of things still haven't changed though. And it bothers me. Um, I, I, I worry, I worry about non-custodial dads and the limited amount of time they have with their children. Mm -hmm. I worry about black and Hispanic fathers who are less likely to have any type of custody arrangement. Um, and, you know, it's, we, we learned a lot from the fragile family study. And part of the reason was I was still making a lot of mistakes, even though I was getting an education. I thought that was going to save me and straighten me out. Mm -hmm. And I had a non-marital birth. Uh, 
Chloe was born in 98. They, in Baltimore, they, right when the, they were here in Baltimore doing the fragile family study. And uh, it was a nightmare what uh, Chris and I eventually got married, but what we had to go through. And because uh, I was on Medicaid, we were poor. Um, and there's so many fragile families that are still like that. We know the non-marital birth rate still hovering around 34% for the country, but higher for black women and uh, Hispanic women. And there's no structure. I'm not a big marriage proponent, Mm -hmm. but it does convey benefits to spouses and to children and these these kids that are being born um, outside of marriage are missing out on these benefits and it worries me about how we as a society meet the needs of these uh, types of families yeah I think you know the issue with the marriage stuff is it's not so much that to your point um, it is one of the best ways and best environments to raise your children in. It is that we frame it sometimes as the only best way. Right. And so it places doubts in the minds of people that don't follow um, what, you know, many of us have described and talked about as the success sequence, like, how do you go through life and come out with maximum outcomes um, of being an individual and a parent um, to your children? And what does that look like? And so for those individuals who don't start out in that pathway, they doubt themselves with respect to whether or not they can be as successful. And so we always talk about the individuals that don't follow that success sequence from a deficit perspective. We don't talk about that there can be positive narratives for individuals who just simply made mistakes in life um, or had oops in life, right? And how do you continue to move on um, through a different journey and get the same results? And so, and the premise of that being the best way to do it shapes how the federal government creates programs. And so we got a whole, we got $75 million buried in the premise that marriage is the only best way, right? We've made some uh, advancements in the last probably five years where we are now beginning to start to talk about um, relationships um, in addition to marriage, but the work itself is still steep in this notion that if you get married, that's going to be your best outcome. And I think that that's a, I don't know if that's a dialogue, a change of mind, or a change of concept that has to happen moving forward so that more people feel like they can win in life. Well, you know, I think, you know, part of my dissertation looked at the co-parenting relationship. 
And I remember my dissertation chair and uh, Dr. Cheryl Miller, I was her research, research assistant in grad school. And that's when Chris and I, we were married and we were coming apart. And I was complaining to her that um, I didn't, he wasn't, wasn't doing something to my liking in terms of parenting. And I, I said something about like maybe not letting Chloe spend the weekend with him. And she looked at me and she said, Stacy, sit down. And I did. She had three daughters. She said, don't ever, ever keep your ch- child from her father. Promise me that. Mm. And I said, Okay, she said, be, it's the worst thing you can do. She, and I, she said, do whatever you have to do, but keep him involved. And I said, okay. And, uh, and so I'm reading up on the co-parenting relationship and all that, recognizing that we were a fragile family. And we're starting to get contentious because child support was ordered. It was, it was I think, 300 a month mm-hmm. and uh but they were gonna garnish his wages and the state was recouping that to pay for my medicaid costs mm-hmm. um and not only that i they said i had to have sole physical custody or and i said no like he's her father i want joint custody and he said if you do that and you need uh, social service benefits, you won't get them again. So it was all set up for him to be like ousted from the family. And that bothered me. So he started like child support was becoming an issue because he had trouble keeping steady employment. And I said to him one day, how about this? I will never enforce a child support order with you. And he said, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I said, you have my word. I said, it's causing this much tension. I never will. I said, and I'll just trust that you'll give what you can when you can. And he did. He did what we find the dads that we study did. He did in-kind stuff all the time. He came over every morning and made her breakfast and drove her to school. He came over every night after work and read her a story before she fell asleep. And um, my daughter, she's 24 now, has probably said to me at least three times in the last few years, Mom, because... Whenever she's home from school, the three of us do things together all the time. Mm-hmm. He's, we're like best friends now. <laughs> and Chloe says, Mom, I can't tell you what it means to be able to spend time with all three of us. And we have so much fun. And it's, it's just, she said, it means the world to me. And I think that's what kids need, right? Uh, if we could get co-parenting relationships, uh, I mean, Chris and I went through our drama of when each of us started dating again and we each started freaking out on the other. Uh, that's, the, that's the big hurdle, I think, uh, for most fragile families. Like when you get booed up, 
with someone else. <laughs> Ooh. Um, but once we got past that uh, and we saw that helping each other helped Chloe mm-hmm. tremendously. Like we were each other's, when we became each other's advocates, it was like something changed. And I, I mean, I, he, I must see him two or three times a week. He's, he'll still stop over. Do you need help moving a box? You want me to run to the store for you? Like, you know, and he lives with his girlfriend and we talk and she's great. But um, that's these co, co, co-parental relationships aren't like that for a lot of the dads that we serve and study. And I don't know how to get them there. Well, society hasn't conditioned them to be able to be parents. Um, Again, you know, so when you talk about this marriage thing, you know, when you begin to have that conversation, you know, the, the first and beginnings of marriage is steep in this conversation around relationship and emotion. So you're doing all the things to boo people up, right, to get them up so that they find out whether or not they're with their soulmate or not, and then they make a decision to commit to each other, and then they're locked in life. Um, Not taking into consideration um, that, you know, it's interesting because you know I'm so literal in everything that I do. I'm about making sure that words have definitions and that we are uh, true when it comes to when we describe something as something and that we own what we're talking about in that space. And I challenge many words that we use in the responsible fatherhood space because I think that some of these words contribute to some of the issues we also have. Fragile is one of them, right? Fragile, so the question is, what is a fragile family? Isn't all families and all relationships fragile? No, well, fragile families is something that Ron Mincy coined. And I know that he coined was, them, but I'm talking about the word itself, fragile. Oh. No, not mean? all families are fragile. Okay. Some of them are really stable and, uh, yeah, and not not fragile. The things that make families fragile are uh, economic insecurity, Infidelity, uh, in-laws butting in, uh, children with behavior problems, uh, one of the spouses or partners has a substance use disorder. Um, so all these things, there's, uh, there's so many things that can make a family fragile, but not all of them are. There are, well, I mean, look at you and Tracy. You guys aren't fragile at all. Yeah, you know, but I don't think that, so I don't think that we, what's the best way to put this? I don't think that we're fragile, but I'm listening to you with the descriptors of what a fragile family is. And in my mind's eye, I'm looking at this box that I take to the post office that has glass on the inside of it. 
and I put fragile on the outside. It is because I want the folks who are delivering the box to understand that there is something on the inside that has the potential to be broken. Mm-hmm. And it only takes one act to break that thing which is on the inside. And what you're describing are those one things that can fragment a family. It only takes one of them. And so in that context, every family is only one act from being broken. And it is because they're fragile, because relationships are fragile. Now, you can strengthen them. You can make them really strong so that, you know, if I'm using the same analogy, if I put it in a metal, if I'm, if I'm the black box, right, in the plane, and the plane hits the ground, somebody's going to find it and everything in the box is, is, uh, is, is, is still recordable, still listen, you can still listen to it, it's still intact, it, it maintains its usage. But then that becomes, the, that becomes the issue in the difference and degrees to which a family is fragile, which is how strong is the environment and the box around it. Yeah, and I would also caution you that, well, any one of those things can make a family fragile. Uh, families are usually a little bit more resilient and kids, too, than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, Chris and I, for example, none of those, well, we were had economic hardship, but um, we both had trouble managing our lives mm-hmm. from day to day. Um, and then we had this baby, right? I'll never forget when we came home from the hospital. We both sat down on the sofa with Chloe in the car seat between us, and we looked at each other, and I said, what are we supposed to do now? Mm. He's like, I don't know. You're the mother. I thought you would know. I said, I have no idea. <laughs> and he, I said, you, you have to help me. He said, I don't have any idea. I said, well, should we take her out of the car seat? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> and do what with it once we take her out? And then do what? Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, we both had to learn how to parent. And it was, but we had trouble managing our lives. He still does uh, on a day-to-day basis. He has pretty severe ADHD and some other things, but... Um, there was never any abuse, never any infidelity, never anything like that. But I remember talking to my advisor, telling her our problems. And she said, I know exactly what your problem with your marriage is. Would you like me to tell you? And I said, yes. She goes, Stacy, every marriage and household needs an executive director. <laughs> and I said, okay. She goes, your problem is neither of you want the job. Oh, wow. Neither of you are qualified to do the job. (laughs) So for me, it was like a survival thing. Like I think it is for a lot of moms. Like I got to take care of myself and this child. I can't take care of this man too. Like he's getting his car towed because he has uh, 60 parking tickets and like just unmanageability. Uh So um, it becomes a like, like you have to take care of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Because you and your partner don't know how to take care of each other. Wow. And I think that's what goes on in these families too. But you know, the other thing is, I think that, you know, cause you and I, we, and I love our, I don't call them battles. They're just, you know, 
philosophies and how we see, how we frame what we're doing and how we make the most sense out of it based on how we see it. You know, I just think that we, when we think about relationships and parenting, like um, we don't think about them in the various nuances that are real life, real time. And that it's almost like these widgets, like we try to create these rules and boundaries around what a family should look like, what it should do, how it should go about it, who can make it happen, what's the best success model, what's the best practice, what is all these things. And every family and every relationship is a fingerprint. Like the same thing that works for Mm -hmm. a family in a particular situation on the East will probably devastate the same family on the West, right? And so it is, how do we take this? And I don't think that there's any other body of work in this world that is so critical that it becomes successful that includes this issue of emotion in it. Like I often tell people, like, you know, when you get in your car and pull up to the light and look at the light, you don't typically have an emotion about whether or not the light is red or green. Or when you pull up to a cash register and you're paying for your groceries, you don't have typically have an emotion about the fact that there's taxes attached to your food. And so we don't have the same intense emotion about anything that we engage in in life for the most part except parenting. And it is not because we don't care. It is because we care so much, which makes it even more intense, which is why when two families, when two individuals are at odds with each other, you know, I'd say this thing and it, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to put some framing around it, particularly for the fathers that we serve and how we really get this ingrained in their psyche so that it becomes part of their daily narrative, which is you cannot hate someone more than you love your children. Right, right. Yeah, I just put that in one of the things I wrote. Uh, Love your child more than you hate your ex. Um, That's true. And I think, you know, that's, I think women, mothers are a big part of this. I think uh, a lot of mothers get off on, I'm the mother, I'm the most important parent, and they have an identity built around that. And they're not. They're equally important, fathers and mothers, right? Um, But mothers, um, having them let go of the reins and let dad's parent and let them make mistakes and do things differently than they would. Um, I was on Quora. You ever go on there? Mm-mm. I was, couldn't sleep one night. <laughs> I was on the feminist thread and I, this woman posts, my ex didn't pay his child support. So he came to get our daughter and I said he couldn't take her. And I said, that is a violation of a visitation agreement. Mm-hmm. You cannot do that. Right. And I said, he is not purchasing time with his child. I said, you call the child support office. That child support will continue to accrue until he pays every last dime. He will never get the time back. 
that you stole from him Mm -hmm. that he was supposed to have with his child. And I don't, for some reason, I don't think mothers see it. Like for me, because my dad was absent and because I had, you know, professors and advisors around me telling me how to go through this, um, I'm, I made sure he was connected, even when I wanted to like strangle him. Um, it's like, Oh, come on in, (laughs) you know? Um, but I don't think all fragile families or whatever you unmarried, uh, couples with children. I don't think they see the urgency in putting their child before their reactions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, no. And, you know, and part of it is that, you know, I've been using this term um, conditional learning, you know, that under whatever conditions you happen to live, you learn particular things as a result of it. So then the question is, what have we learned about parenting from the conditions that were our lives and how do we play that stuff forward? And then how does society frame, you know, that conditioning as well? Um, And I think that, you know, when it comes to, you know, we're supposed to be talking about women and fatherhood. We're going to have to come back to that because we got about nine minutes to go. But I want to stay in this space because I think it's what we're talking about is so important to talk about as it relates to co-parenting. And how we do it and how we um, maintain and manage relationships in order to do it the best way that our children need from us. And that is, you know, when we're thinking about these parents, we want them to be emotionally logical in an unemotional, illogical space. Yeah. Does that make sense? If that makes sense. Right. And and you can't, you can't because emotions drive us. We are emotional beings. It's what makes us who we are. Um, and so there is no, you know, there is, there is legal logic to your point in addressing that woman, which is, whoa, hold on, wait a minute. You know, there is a parenting agreement in place and by law you can't do this and you know and you can't do that because this is what folks said and then the other reality at the same time is bump law this is my child right right (laughs) right exactly yes um and it's it it it, you know Armand Perry, he's been paying more attention to co-parenting. A lot of people are looking at it now. And I think even the feds are, I bet in the next round of grants, they list co-parenting and working with moms as an allowable activity. That's my prediction Mm. because they see how important it is. Um, But it's... uh, what we know and what I know this really irritates you is that dad's relationships with their children operate through the moms. So, but what you also happens is mom's parenting operates 
with the dad's help too. Mm -hmm. So when dads are involved, research shows that moms parent better and the BSF building strong family studies, which had terrible results other than the Oklahoma site in Joe's site at CFUF domestic violence increased. Mm -hmm. But what they, what nobody talked about in the finding from that BSF was when dads were more involved, mother's depression went down. Now, having a depressed mother is a strong indicator for a troubled childhood and future behavior and internalizing problems. It's a big deal um, to the fact that dad's participation can have a reduction on that. The fact that dad's participation makes mom parent better, like she's more patient, she's happier. there's There's a reciprocity going on there between these two parents. And even if they're not romantically involved anymore. So I, I think that's something to build on. I mean, people ask me all the time, like feminists are like, oh, you know, you only care about men. You don't care about women. I'm like, what? Why? Like part of the reason I do this work is in the interest of women. Mm-hmm. Like they have mm-hmm. only everything to gain from this. Um, and uh, it kills me how that escapes most women and mothers. And I, again, it's because of that conditional learning. Like we are so steep in the notion. Um, and, and, you know, and men, you know, if we were looking at this thing historically, um, played a role in positioning this conversation, right? And so when you look at... Um, the origins of child support, you know, and mm-hmm. why child support became an issue for an alimony, you know, for women who were not in the workplace and who played a role as stay-at-home moms while men went out and ran the world or at least attempted to run the world, right, and mm-hmm. played in the biggest playgrounds they could play in and do whatever they felt like doing, Um And, you know, society says you can't do this and then leave this wife with all these children and to go find you a 25-year-old secretary and leave your family abandoned, right? We got to do something about that, right? Which was something that had a, it was a good idea. Yeah, something has to be done about that. And so, and then when you look at, that premise and how that began and started and now that it has evolved over time and more women are working, more women are empowered, more women are thinking more men are thinking more about their parental responsibilities and all these things are happening. It is the lowest denominator of our social society or social economic society that is being crushed by a process that was created for a whole nother reason. But exactly. we still hold on to it based on why it was created in the first place, right? Because it was something that was stimulated by what men were doing. And we are still chastising and punishing men 
under that same premise when that thing is not going on anymore. We're not in that space anymore. And so, and so right, it wasn't prepared for right. the huge, huge rise in non-marital births. Right. Like that, right. you know, marriage provides the structure for defining who the father is. Mm-hmm. Like if you're married, your husband goes on the birth certificates. So we had to go back to square one and say, you know, get, you know, affidavits of paternity signed and things like that, which gives fathers uh, no rights other than to have child support go after them. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, these, these, especially low-income non-custodial dads, it's like policies have been developed that work against them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. intentionally. And as much as what gets me about the conservatives in society who talk about wanting marriage back and, you know, religion in homes and things like that, well, then why aren't we looking at these policies that are keeping men estranged? Why aren't we looking at the, you know, the barriers? And, you know, definitions of what a good father is have changed over time. And now we're at this definition that a good father is a caring, nurturing, loving father. Mm-hmm. And black dads especially... That's how they see themselves. They build their identities around that the same way mothers build their identities, Mm -hmm. that they are, quote unquote, there for their kids. They're around when they need them. They're with them. Uh, And it is devastating to them Mm -hmm. to not be able to have that experience. Yeah, You know, I think that and we have to close, I think that so the two words that race through my mind is admirable and honorable, right? Society rewards the individuals whose admiration and honor supports women in anything, right? And people will move against what is right to do for children to be in that space and be cheered upon, in that space because it is an admirable thing and an honorable thing to protect our women and protect our moms and protect our children. Nobody is denying that. Nobody wants to say that that's not something that we should be doing as men. But when we do it at the expense of men, that's when it becomes a problem. It is. And that's, you know, that's the narrative that's taken over also in the past you know, several decades. Um, I remember when I was teaching at the college level and I would go start getting into marriage and blah, blah, blah. All the girls in the class, uh, my mom raised me as a single mom and I'm fine. (laughs) We didn't need any man in the house. And it's like, oh God, like this thought that women don't need men. Well, okay, but like we need each other. We need each other because that's how we're going to advance. And the only way we're going to advance is if we do it together. And these 
kind of maternal rights organizations, father's rights organizations, the hatred that they have for each other is unreal. Right. But we got to do it together. Yeah, I saw a meme um, some time ago. I wish I could find it. I might just have to create it. And the meme said, although you may not, although you may not need a man, your child needs a man. Exactly. <laughs> and I just thought every time I see that meme, I'm like, man, I got to copy this thing and, and, and run this. But every time I see it, it also creates a whole lot of dialogue in the comment section. So, Stacey, we got to close this down. What's so bad about it? We're interdependent <laughs> people. Right. It's okay to need each other. Yeah. But anyway, I'll get off my sofa. <laughs> Listen, tell people how they can get in touch with you, Stacey. Um, how can you get in touch with me? Um, if you go to my LinkedIn page, you know, Stacy Boucher, I, my number's on there, my email, Boucher at gmail.com. Anybody, feel free to email me. Um, and I'll get back to you in six months when I get through my 10,000 emails that are on open. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm about to go through all of November today. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining I Am Dad podcast. You will be back because we have so many different subjects that we could talk about. And we do want to come back and talk about women and fatherhood because it is a, a conversation that we should have. Um, I know when we talk, we talk for hours. Yes, we? we can. But we got so much to talk about. That's why I told you in the beginning, I know what I want to talk about, but that may not be what we talk about. And I think my listeners are um, comfortable in knowing that at some point we're going to get to that stuff. But I want to thank each and every one of you uh, for joining I Am Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Make sure you go to our website at IamDadPodcast.com. Please leave your comments and subscribe. It's extremely important that you do those two things because it helps our algorithms with respect to how many people see um, and listen to and download our podcast. Until next Sunday, thank you so much and God bless. Thanks, Kenny. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child... I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period.